0: Good afternoon and welcome back to After the Final Whistle, my new podcast for Episode 3 today. We have a double feature for you. I'm going to start off with a recap of all the games from this morning in the Men's Soccer Olympics up in Tokyo. And then we're going to pivot over to the Gold Cup where the U.S. Men's National Team has been in action over the past two weeks. We're going to take a look at their lineups, their tactics, Greg Berhalter's decisions, and we're going to preview their semifinal matchup against Qatar. Let's get into it. So first off, in Tokyo, again, just a quick overview of the competition. It is a 23 and under competition. It has been that way since 1992. However, this year, it has been pushed back to 24 and under because of the coronavirus. So if a player was eligible to play last year when the tournament was supposed to have taken place, they are eligible to play this year. Three designated players are permitted on each roster. Those are any players over the age of 24. Each player is allowed to roster 22 players with 18 dressing for each game. They can have 16 field players and two goalkeepers on the bench. So the red card suspensions that we have, these are players that received red cards in the second games, unable to play this morning. Mexico's is Johan Vazquez from Pumas. Romania's Ian Georgi of FC Voluntari. Brazil's Douglas Luiz of Aston Villa. Ivory Coast is Ebue Guasi of Genk and Germany's Amos Pieper of Armenia Biele field. And then, because this is the third game, we do have our first yellow card accumulation substitute. So, if a player received a yellow card, a yellow card in back-to-back games, they were forced to sit out this morning. Four players fit that criteria. Argentina's Ezekiel Ponce of Spartak Moscow, Australia's Mitchell Duke of Altawan, Riley McGree of Birmingham City, and Nathaniel Atkinson of Melbourne City FC, received yellow cards in their first and second games, and were not eligible to take the field today. So let's start with Group A, Japan taking on France. Going into this game, I really thought France would win. I thought a physical game, if it occurred, would favor for the would favor the French, and it, it ended up being a very physical game. 36 fouls between the two teams, but J- Japan was able to take advantage of the chances they were given. In the 27th minute, Japan striker Ayase Ueda had a shot blocked into the path of the oncoming Takafusa Kubo of Real Madrid to smash the ball home 4-1-0. Move on to the 34th minute. Another blocked shot falls to the feet of Japan's left-back Hiroki Sakai to go up 2-0. So France not able to take advantage of any chances up until this point. In the 70th minute, halftime substitute Koji Miyoshi of Japan finds the ball at the top of the box for a nice left-footed shot that slides into the bottom left corner. For Japan, up 3-0, only two minutes later in the most unnecessary and violent challenge I have seen in this tournament so far. The goal scorer, Koji Miyoshi, was shielding off French midfielder Alexis Beka before France right wing French right winger Randall Muani came out of absolutely nowhere and stomped on Miyoshi's calf. He was given a yellow card, but it was overturned by VAR for a red card. He was sent off the field. France forced to play with 10 men. In second half stoppage time, Daisen Maeda was slipped in by Yuki Soma and he finished across the goal as the substitute assists the substitute for Japan to win 4-0. A notable absence in terms of where they were on the field the whole game, Andre pierre Gignac had a hat trick last game, nowhere to be found on the field. He was not able to get anything going for France. France only had two shots on goal for the whole game. That was second to Japan's eight. Clearly, Japan had the better of the chances, and they were able to take advantage, knocking France out of this competition. In the second game of Group A, Mexico took on South Africa, a team that I mentioned last episode has impressed me with the way that they've tried to keep teams in this game. They held France to 4-3, to and I expected a much closer game than this one actually came out to be. In the 18th minute, Mexico's Carlos Antuna slipped a ball across the face of the goal, to find his club teammate at Guadalajara, Ernesto Vega, for a simple 4-yard tap-in and to put el 3 up 1-0 to in the 45th minute in the first half. Center defensive mid Luis Romo of Mexico chipped, it was chipped in before his shot was blocked by slide, by a sliding defender, the ball bounced straight back into Romo's leg and into the goal for a 2-0 Mexico lead heading into the break. In the 54th minute, the South African center back Repo Malebe went studs up into the ankle of Mexico's number 9, Henry Martin. It was given as a yellow card, but once again, as we saw in the Japan-France game, it was upgraded by VAR to a red card after the referee went to the video monitor. Six minutes later, in the 60th minute, Carlos Rodriguez was played in it as a through ball. He played a through ball into Henry Martin's feet for a 1v1 finish with South African keeper Ronwyn Williams for Martins goal and Mexico to go up three to zero in the 66th minute South Africa's Luther Singh found himself on the break for South Africa before being yanked down by Carlos Rodriguez outside of the box Rodriguez was handed a straight red card no VAR check needed and South Africa did have the hand upper hand in terms of possession as I would have thought coming into this game they had uh the advantage 56 to 44 percent but they only had five chances created two Mexico's 13 they just couldn't get anything going in terms of actual chances and as a result Mexico takes this one moving on to group B in which all four teams in this group Romania New Zealand South Korea and Honduras had three points apiece coming into this game the first game Romania and New Zealand Romania needed all three points they needed to defeat New Zealand in order to advance with New Zealand having a better goal differential already and throughout the game, the only thing I could think of was how horrendous Romania was on the ball. 38% possession and 67% pass success. It was like watching a youth team, to be quite honest. And I'm very surprised New Zealand was not able to take advantage of the way that Romania played. And I, I was shocked because I thought Romania played decently well against Honduras. I thought they played okay against South Korea, but against New Zealand, they just they played awfully. And both teams had 10 shots, um, but over half for each team were off target again and it just wasn't a very fun game to watch. It wasn't a free-flowing game at all. 33 fouls combined for both teams, five yellow cards. The referee not afraid to stop this game, and it was probably my least favorite game to watch of this morning's session. Moving on to the second game of this group, a group that, in all honesty, completely picked up the slack that Romania and New Zealand left was South Korea and Honduras. Honduras was in the same situation as Romania. They needed a win to advance with South Korea having the best goal differential out of the four teams. Notably absent, again, was Valencia's Kangin Lee. He was benched in the second game after playing terif- uh, horribly pardon, in the first game, subbed off there in the 60th minute. In the second game, he came on, did score two goals off of the bench. I was a little surprised to not see him in the starting lineup, but South Korea's, the rest of their players were able to step up and fill in his absence. In the 12th minute, a South Korean winger, Dong Jun Lee, appeared to trip over his own foot with a slight push from the Honduran left-back Wesley Dekas. It was given as a soft penalty, in my opinion. And Ui Jo Hwang had a very powerful finish, passed the goalkeeper's right just over his outstretched hands. He did guess correctly, but the shot just had too much power on it. South Korea went up 1-0. Seven minutes later, Carlos Melendez tackled two South Korean players on a corner, and the referee gave him a yellow card as well as South Korea's second penalty of the game. I expected Ui Jo Hwang to step up once again, but instead, the midfielder Du Won smashes smashed his penalty right down the middle to put South Korea up 2-0. In the 39th minute, Honduras still appeared to be in the game. They had some possession, they had some shots, but a poor clearance from Carlos Melendez resulted in him dragging down Dong Joon Lee for his second yellow card and leaving the Hondurans down to 10 men. In first half stoppage time, a deflected cross fell to no other than ui Joe huang who scored the first penalty he put in his second goal of the game on what essentially was an empty net for a three to zero lead going into the break when we came back in the 52nd minute christopher melendez had a slide tackle inside the box for honduras and it was awarded the third penalty of the game for south korea in my opinion it was the most obvious pen that had been given so far i thought the first two were kind of soft but this one i for no doubt it was a two-footed slide tackle the ball was out of the attacker's feet and it was a definite penalty. The Honduran goalkeeper Alex Witte guessed correctly again but he did, and he did manage a hand this time but the shot just had too much power and Ui Jo Hwang had a hat trick to give South Korea a 4-0 lead. In the 64th minute, only 12 minutes later, Jin ya Kim put South Korea up 5-0 with the goal of the day, a beautiful right-footed curler that the Honduran team, defenders and goalie could only stop and stare at. And then, in the 82nd minute, just as he did in the second game, Kangin Lee was given some time as a substitute. He was given time on the ball. He scored his third goal in two games from right outside of the box as South Korea puts on an absolute clinic and wins 6-0. In the third group, Group C, Egypt, Australia, Spain, and Argentina. My favorite group coming into this tournament, Egypt took on Australia today. In the 44th minute, Ramadan Sobi beat his defender to get to the end line and he scored it back for his forward, Yasser Ryan, who made absolutely no mistake to put Egypt up 1-0. to Later on in the 85th minute, the Australian goalie Thomas Glover bobbled an absolutely routine save off of a left-footed shot and he deflected the ball into the path of wide-open substitute Amar Hamdi to give Egypt the 2-0 to win. It was a very even game in my opinion. The statistics showed about the same, about 50% possession, for both teams five shots on goal for australia and four for egypt so it wasn't e- it was a it was a very even game i thought either team could have taken it um but in the end the deciding factor was the egyptian goalie Mohamed el shanawi whose five saves did secure a second place finish over argentina speaking of argentina they took on spain in the other game in that group and in the 66th minute with spain on the attack Mikel or his cross was brought down by RB Leipzig's Dani Omo and laid off for midfielder Mikel Merino of Real Sociedad to go up 1-0 in the 87th minute. L'Albi Celeste pulled one back after the midfielder Thomas Belmonte, who directed a header off of Una Simon into the goal, was able to tie up the game at 1-1. Both, keepers, both goalkeepers had five saves apiece in a game that, in my opinion, could have easily been 2-2 or 3-3. Argentina had six yellow cards in 13 fouls to try and disrupt Spain's possession, but it didn't work. Spain able to hold on, and they did advance. Argentina, a team that I predicted would do very well. They did very well in the U21 World Cup. I thought they would have a good Olympics. They are eliminated going back to South America. And lastly, in Group D, my game of the day, other than the Spain and Argentina game, was Germany and Ivory Coast, both teams coming in with very strong performances. And of course, Wolfsburg's Maximilian Arnold, back in the starting 11 after serving his one-game suspension for a red card in Germany's first game against Brazil. In the 67th minute, German center back Felix Uduokai attempted to clear a throw-in from Saudi Arabia into the box, but he kicked the ball against the leg of his right-back Benjamin Hendricks for an own goal and giving Ivory Coast a 1-0 lead. Goalkeeper Florian Muller was absolutely frustrated with both of those two players with the lack of communication, but Saudi Arabia, or Ivory Coast pardon did end up scoring and going up 1-0. Five minutes later, the German substitute Eduard Lowen striked a gorgeous free kick from just under 25 yards out that dipped up and over the wall to tie the game at 1-1. Other than that, neither team had... A lot of chances, but I thought it was a very fun game to watch in terms of midfield possession and seeing which team was able to just take advantage of what they were given. It was, in my opinion, the toughest group of all four groups. The Germans needed a win, but they cannot pull a second goal back despite 63% possession, over 200 more completed passes than Ivory Coast, and 15 shots the Ivory Coast defense held firm to send one of the stronger teams in the group and in the tournament overall home. And in Group D, Brazil took on Saudi Arabia in the 14th minute. Mateus Cunha broke free of his defender off of Claudinho corner to score and go up 1-0. 13 minutes later, in the 27th minute, Al Amri headed a free kick in to tie the game up 1-1 and put some pressure on Brazil to go ahead and score some more goals. And who else would be up to the task but Richarlison of Everton with a nice poachers goal in the 76th minute. Just inside the six, with a free header to swing momentum in Brazil's favor and put the score up two to one. Then, in second half stoppage time, about 15 minutes later, Brazil was pushing forward. They wanted one more. They were not gonna. They were not content to sit back and win two to one. Borussia Dortmund's Renier crossed the ball across the mouth of the goal, and Richarlison once again in the right place at the right time for a brace and to give Brazil the three to one win in terms of my star player of course match day one it was richarlison for his hat trick match day two gignac for his hat trick and today i think an honorable mention once again could be richarlison he overtook gignac for the top goal scorer in this competition with his two goals bringing his overall total up to five in three games which is very impressive but i'm ha- gonna have to give it to south korea's ui joe hwang of bordeaux he plays his club football in france he is 28 years old and South Korea struggled in both of their two games, to be quite honest. Offensively, one of their most creative players, and Lee, benched after the first game. And in this game, their most important game, uh, Ui Joe Hwang comfortably put away both of his penalties and added another for a hat trick. He is my star player, and I look forward to seeing what this South Korean team can do with this momentum going into their next game. And of course, those quarterfinal matchups are coming up this Saturday on July 31st. Spain, with their six players from the Euro squad, will take on Ivory Coast. Frank Kessie's physicality dominated the first two games for Ivory Coast, but he did not really show up in the second game. I give the advantage to France. That will kick off at 4 a.m. Eastern time. Second game will be Japan, the only team so far in this competition to win all of their three games versus, a, in my opinion, the poorest of the eight teams that advanced New Zealand. Uh, they will kick off at 5 a.m. Eastern time. Then in the third game, Brazil, with Richarlison back to his goal-scoring ways, will take on Egypt, which does have a very robust defense that did manage to hold Spain goalless in their first game, will kick off at 6 a.m. Eastern time, and last but not least, in the fourth game of the day, South Korea, with all the momentum in the world, to be quite honest, after their 6-0 win, will take on Mexico, a team that beat France in their first game, but fell off in the two games after, that game will kick off at 7 a.m eastern time and of course i will have all of the action from those four games recapped for you on saturday but for now let's move on to the home soil where the u.s men's national team has been in action as i said in the gold cup the gold cup is a CONCACAF tournament where teams from north america central america and the caribbean come together to play and determine essentially who is the best team out of those three regions it's equivalent to the Euros in the Copa America that we just had and the African Cup of Nations, which will start in January of 2022. It is held every two years. Since 1991, Canada has won once, the U.S. six times, and Mexico, the overall leader at eight times, including in the last competition in 2019, where a lone Jonathan Dos Santos goal pushed Mexico over the United States 1-0. And for those of you wondering, well, didn't we just have north american competition we did it this is a different tournament to the CONCACAF nations league that we just had that team was brand new its first incarnation was the game that just finished up just over a month and a half ago where all 41 teams in north america central america and the caribbean whereas the gold cup only has 16 teams these all 41 teams are placed into three tiers an a tier a b tier and a c tier the four group winners in Tier A advanced to a Final Four-style competition, which in the past couple months was the U.S., Mexico, Honduras, and Costa Rica. And then the worst teams in each of the four groups in Tier A is relegated to Tier B for the next competition and replaced with the four group winners of Tier B. And then the worst team in each of the four groups in Tier B is relegated to Tier C, and replaced with the four group winners of tier C. So it's kind of a promotion and relegation system that we don't have right now in the U.S. in terms of club soccer. And it's a very similar format to the UEFA Nations League, but they have a, um, four tiers, an A, B, a C, and a D tier just because of the sheer number of countries that they have that they want to get involved in this competition. And the finals for that competition did just take place on June 6th. As I said, just over a month and a half ago, the US defeated Mexico 3 to 2 in extra time. And so with these two competitions so close to one another, Greg Burhalter said that he wanted to have a one player pool. He wanted to pull players from just one giant kind of 60 man pool for both of these teams to give uh players an equal opportunity to win a trophy, but what it really what really ended up happening was he picked his A team for the Nations League and his B team is competing right now for the Gold Cup. Only four players were shared between the two ro- the two rosters, Reggie Cannon of Boa Vista, Kellen Acosta of Colorado Rapids, Sebastian Legit of LA Galaxy, and Jackson UL of the San Jose Earthquakes. Those are the only four players that were actually on both rosters. And international players dominate what I'm going to call the A-team roster. So this was the team that played in the Nations League. Only four MLS players um, out of those 23 players as it competed in the MLS The rest of them competed uh, in Europe. That includes players like Sergino Dest of Barcelona, Zach Steffen of Manchester City, Christian Pulisic of Chelsea, Gio Reyna of Borussia Dortmund, Tyler Adams of RB Leipzig, Weston McKinney of Juventus, John Brooks of Wolfsburg, and Josh Sargent who also plays for Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. All of those players are in Europe, and of course I left some of the players out there, Anthony Robinson of Fulham, but 19 out of the 23 players on this A-team roster were are competing in Europe. And MLS players completely dominate the B-team roster, so it's flipped. Only 5 international players out of the 23 that are currently competing in the Gold Cup. And it's a team that is filled with inexperience, which is why I view it as the B-team. There are 5 players that have never appeared for the U.S. men's national team prior to the beginning of this tournament. And there were 2 players that each had... A cap a piece. So you have seven players with a cap or less, um, compared to an A, uh, the A team for the nation's league, which had multiple players that have, um, capped over 50 times for the national league, for the national team. And that, that's just what makes me think that this, this gold cup roster is more of a testing ground for Greg burhalter He wants to test these players, kind of see who we can work up into that A team, because I think a lot of the players that started in the nation's league final, um, which the starting lineup was Zach Steffen in goal, uh, Anthony Robinson at left back, Mark McKenzie, who plays for Gank, and John Brooks in center back, Sergio Dest in right back. Uh, I'm trying to remember. McKenney, Adams, and... I don't remember who the third midfielder was. Started in the midfield, and then up front, you had Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, Christian Pulisic. So... I think that a team, when we go into World Cup qualifiers, I think the starting roster is going to look a lot like that with Kellen Acosta perhaps coming in and playing in that midfield role um, just based on his Gold Cup performance. But so far in the Gold Cup, this B team in the group stage, they took on Haiti. They won 1-0. They played Martinique in their second game, a team that is not officially recognized by FIFA because they are a French dominion. They won 6-1 in that game, which... It was kind of an outlier, in my opinion. It's a Martinique team that's very raw. They don't play a ton of games together, and I don't think it should really be looked at if you're going to analyze how this U.S. team has performed. And then in their third game in the group stage, they took on Canada, managing to win 1-0. So they ended the group stage with nine points, which looked very good. It's very, it's very hopeful for the future of this U.S. men's national team, of course, a very young roster, both the A roster and the B roster, very young. And then in the quarterfinals, they took on Jamaica where the U.S. managed to win 1-0 thanks to a late goal from Matthew Hoppe. And then they will now play in the semifinals against Qatar tomorrow with the final, the winner of that game taking on, uh, playing in the finals against the winner of Mexico and Canada. So now if we get into analysis of the U.S. men's national team and how they've performed in these last four games. Uh, formation-wise, they started in a 4-3-3 against Haiti in their first game. Burhalter didn't like that they were only able to win 1-0, so he switched to a 3-4-1-2 against Martinique, which was very attacking. Um, and I think it worked well against a Martinique team that had a very weak defense. He then tried a little bit of a variation. He dropped cam um, back into a 3-5-2 against Canada. That did not work at all, in my opinion. So he went back to the 4 through 3 against Jamaica. Looking first at the defense, I think the pairing for the game against Qatar. it needs to be miles robinson of atlanta united and james sands of new york city fc in the last game against jamaica those two had zero fouls combined between the two of them and Burhalter in the first game he had um he had robinson playing with walker zimmerman in center back zimmerman looked iffy so in the third game the second and third games he switched to zimmerman robinson and sands as a three back uh, three center backs and then uh, he pulled Zimmerman for the fourth game and brought in just Robinson and Sands by themselves. And that's, in my opinion, where I think the U.S. looked the best defensively. Uh, and looking forward to World Cup qualifiers and comparing it to this A-team, John Brooks's partner is up for grabs. Mark McKenzie, as I said, started in the Nations League. I don't think he's as strong as Berhalter needs um, to perform well in the World Cup qualifiers and get back into a tournament that... We were not able to qualify for last time because of a loss to Trinidad and Tobago. And the only goal that they've given up so far in all four games was a penalty to Martinique. And I think the defense so far has been perhaps the highest point, the most hopeful point of this team, because when you go into the midfield and the attack, there's there's even more issues. At right back, Berhalter has stuck to Shaq Moore of Tenerife. And I think Moore is a menace offensively and defensively. He's 5'11", 163 pounds, but he does get gassed um, very quickly just because of the pure number of runs that he makes. Uh, he's been subbed in every game. One game subbed at halftime, the other game subbed in and around the 60, 65th minute mark. So I think he's a great player to have, and being able to bring on Reggie Cannon after him, I think is it's, it's a good right back to have when you have someone like Shaq Moore making those runs. And I think he he could be a very good backup to Sergino Dest, of course. The FC Barcelona star worked his way into a starting role for his club. He's undoubtedly the starter at right back when we get into World Cup qualifying. But Shaq Moore, knock on wood, Dest doesn't get hurt. Or if Berhalter wants to try something new, I think Shaq Moore is a great option at right back. And then in terms of left back, just as he did with Moore, he's kept the same left back in all four games. Sam Vines of the Colorado Rapids, he did score in the first game against Haiti the U.S. men's national team's first goal in this tournament. He's very solid in terms of keeping the ball and his decision-making at his feet. But the one thing that I have to say is his 1v1 defending is a little bit iffy. Uh, he looks a little bit uncomfortable when he has people charging at him. And his communication with the center backs could be better. Uh, and his crossing also needs work. This U.S. men's national team is, at least this this B team roster, has some players that are very tall. Uh, Daryl DK, they can win a lot of headers. Um, and I think that He needs to work a little bit on his crosses uh, if the U.S. wants to win those aerial balls. Uh, Moving on to the midfield, uh, Kellen Acosta of the Colorado Rapids, Gianluca Busio of the Sporting Kansas City, and Sebastian Legit of LA Galaxy, those three did start against Canada and Jamaica in the last two games, and a very bright point in both games. Uh, In terms of passing success, looking at the numbers, Gianluca Busio had a 90% pass success rate in both of the last two games. Legit had over an 85% success rate in both of the last two games. And then Acosta with the worst at 70%, but still very good. Um, you'd like it to be in the 80s, but this this team and the quality of the opposition, 70% is okay. Uh, and I think the midfields, they are very good defensively, especially Acosta and Busio. When Berhalter allows Busio to drop into the defense and doesn't push him to go forward, I think the U.S. is very strong and compact in the middle. Uh, and then Legit, allowing him to get forward. Uh, he has He's played in the last seven games. He's the only player to play in the last seven games. He has three goals um, in the last seven games for the men's national team. So I think if you allow Legit to get up as a 10, Bucio and Acosta as a 6 and an 8, I think that's kind of the midfield that you want when you're going against Qatar. And then in terms of the attack, that's where we have the most questions. Um, in terms of this B team roster, in terms of the A team, there's no questions. We have Josh Sargent, Gio Reyna on the left, Christian Pulisic on the right, or you can swip, switch uh, Reyna and Pulisic. Those three are going to start in the World Cup qualifiers. I don't know who we play in the first game, but those three will start. But behind them, should you need a substitute for one of those, that's where Burhalter wanted to use this tournament to figure that out. And I don't think he's gotten an answer so far in four games. As I said earlier, I'm going to use the game against Martinique as an outlier just because the U.S. had 22 shots and 14 corners compared to Martinique's zero. It's just a different level of competition than you're going to play in World Cup qualifiers um, and then in the World Cup if we qualify. So all three other games were one to zero. Uh, The game against Haiti, the games against Jamaica and Canada, all one to zero in those three games. Two goals were headers against... um, Haiti, it was Sam Vine, Sam Vines in, against Jamaica in the quarterfinals. It was Matthew Hoppe. And then against Canada, Shaq Moore had a tap-in from a cross that was 20 seconds into the game. So if you take away those two crosses in the 20-second goal, we have not scored. Uh, again, isolating the Martinique game, we have not scored in free play. We haven't scored just in general other than those three games. And the lack of goals coming from... The midfield, a midfield that's so strong, is a little bit worrisome. Daryl DK, um, he started the last two game, three games, pardon. He had two goals against Martinique, and I think he played very well in that game. But it was a game where he could let his his physicality shine through. Uh, He could bully the Martinique defenders off the ball, which is exactly what he did for the second goal. He pushed past two players before managing to chip the goalie, and then his first goal was a header. Uh, But he was kind of punished in the games against Canada and Jamaica. He was kind of exposed. His touch is pretty poor for a number nine. He doesn't combine well with the wingers. If it was Paul Ariola or Matthew Hoppy, whoever he had next to him, he didn't combine with them very well. And the U.S. struggled going forward because of that. They were forced to rely on DK to just kind of run in, and it didn't work like it did against Martinique. And then, as I said, Matthew Hoppy scored in the, the last game against Jamaica to send the U.S., into the semifinals, but he's very young. Um, He did play for the Barca Academy in Arizona. I remember following him there. And then when he moved to Schalke, uh, I love watching the kid play, uh, his goals in the Bundesliga, how he was able to score in his first couple games. I think he's a very fun player, and I think if you give him a couple years, he'll be able to grow out of his kind of naivety, his decision-making that can be a little off at times. He looks uncomfortable uh, a little bit on the ball just because of his age. And it shows in his play, but I think if you give if you give him time, if Berhalter keeps him in the rotation, um, I want him to start against Qatar. I think he played, I think he played well enough against Jamaica in order to earn himself a start. I think Burhalter owes it to Hoppy to keep him in the rotation, to keep him on perhaps not the 18, but at least the the 23 for the World Cup qualifiers to get him practice time against. Pulisic against John Brooks to see how he competes with those people I think it's very important for his development Um, and then looking forward to the Qatar game I want to see more of Nicolas Joachini he scored the sixth goal against Martinique we haven't seen a lot of Reggie Cannon at right back but I think what could be a very interesting move if Burhalter wants to kind of experiment against a Qatar team that they can easily break down if they play a certain way is he's played Paul Areola at on the wing and is quick, he's agile, but I think if we moved up Shaq Moore to the right to right wing, of course, more playing a little bit of right wing for Tenerife in La Liga's second division um, in the past season. And then if we start Reggie Cannon at right back, I think that could be a very interesting uh dynamic for this team. And I would love to see Burhalter kind of take a risk on that. Um because I think Shaq Moore makes some great runs and if you don't force him to check back on defense. I think he could be even more of a menace uh, to the opposing defense. And then, of course, um, we have to look at the goalkeeper, and I don't think it's been that much of a factor considering Matt Turner hasn't faced a lot of shots, but he's played very well. I think he could be a great third option for the qualifiers behind Zach Steffen of Manchester City, who will be the starter. And then he has a chance of competing with Ethan Horvath of Nottingham Forest. But I think Horvath right now has that number two spot locked in. Um, and then I think Matt Turner has earned himself at least uh, into the talk for that third spot. So looking on into that game against Qatar, the U.S. has a seven-game win streak going into this game. Qatar, a 12-game unbeaten streak. It's actually the first game ever that these two countries have played against one another. Qatar has been invited into the next two Gold Cups uh, for more games as part of a strategic partnership between CONCACAF and and the Asian Footballing Confederation. Uh, They are hosting World Cup 2022, so this gives them a little bit of time in a structured competition to work out their team, to see how they play, and I think it's a good move. Uh, I think some people will be frustrated that they're not in North America, Caribbean, Central America, and that could have been a place given to one of the teams in there. But we're going to see this team in 2022, and I've been very impressed with how they've played, to be quite honest. And uh, Coach Felix Sanchez of Qatar, he was an FC Barcelona youth coach for 10 years. It does reflect in his style. Qatar tries to keep possession, but they also love to counterattack. And I think this game is a will be a very physical, physical one, uh, especially in the midfield. So I think Kellen Acosta, Gianluca Busio, and Sebastian Legit are going to have to step up. They're going to have to win those balls in the midfield, the 50-50s, and they're going to have to dictate the tempo um, if the U.S. wants to beat this Qatari team, which is a team that is so good and has been a lot of fun to watch in attack and in transition in these last four games. They scored 12 goals. They average just over 16 shots per game and their number nine, Almoez Ali of Al-Duhail SC. Of course, most of these players in the Qatari team play in Qatar's league. He is the top goal scorer though in this competition with four goals and their midfielder Abdulaziz Hatem of Al-Rayon has three goals and the U.S., only one player has more than two goals, or one goal, pardon, and that's Daryl D'K, who has two goals, the two goals he scored against Martinique. So it's this is a Qatari team that has been scoring goals for fun. They've also been giving goals up for fun, at least in their last two games. Uh, they gave up zero goals in their first two games, and then they took on Panama and El Salvador, and they gave up three against Panama and two against El Salvador. So, you know, they took on in their first two games, they played Granada and... I don't remember who they played in their second game, but they gave up zero goals against those two, and then they've given up five in their last two games. So it's a Qatari team that it can be broken down. Their defense can be exposed. Their left back, Hamam Ahmed, who plays for Al-Harifa, he played exceptionally well in the first game against Granada. Um, then he's been the team's worst player in the last two games. He's lost the ball. He can't connect his passes. He's not working back defensively. He's losing his challenges, and I think it's a good matchup. If Berhalter wants to try that Moore-Cannon combination that I was talking about earlier, I think Moore would bully Ahmed off the ball. Um, I think Moore would have his picking of shots, of chances, of dribbles. And I think Cannon is good enough defensively to hold the U.S. Um, in place to allow Moore to go to go forward. Um, my prediction, I think Qatar is going to score an early goal. Kind of surprised this U.S. team, but I think late goals from Kellen Acosta and Giassi Zardes who comes in either as a sub or starts over DK? Uh, the U.S. wins two to one, in my opinion, and takes on. I think Canada is going to beat Mexico. They've played extremely well despite their loss to the U.S. They're missing two of their best players, Alfonso Davies of Bayern Munich, and Jonathan David, um, and they're still playing extremely well. So I think a U.S.-Canada matchup, a rematch of their third group game, I think it'll be a very interesting one. Of course, U.S would love to play Mexico again. We just lost to them in the Nations League. So that would be a good game as well. So I think either team, Canada or Mexico, I think that game is must-watch must TV as well. Um, both of those teams have been fun to watch. So I think regardless of who the U.S. ends up playing, uh, given that they beat Qatar in this game, I think it'll be a great, a great final for a Gold Cup that has been not lacking in action, but it hasn't been as exciting as perhaps the Euros or the Copa America. So... Best of luck to the U.S. tomorrow when they play. And that will be it for today's episode of After the Final Whistle. We looked into the Olympics. We looked into the U.S. men's national team. Episode four will be out after Olympics match day three. And we will recap what happened in the U.S. game tomorrow. Um, But that's been it. Uh, I'll see you next time after the final whistle.